Crazy Hood Productions. I'm Jay Havana, and this is Family Ties. Today's episode is about Crazy Hood founder and CEO, DJ EFN. Widely acknowledged as Miami's mixtape king, EFN is also a marketing and branding consultant, filmmaker, and co-creator and co-host of the Drink Champs podcast. Listen close as he shares his story. Always authentic, always crazy. Another day, another dollar, my story to tell. Another failed piss test, I'm back to jail. Jail cells overcrowded with killers and thieves. Putting work, motherfuckers, roll up your sleeves. I'm Calm Town representer, I'm letting them know. I keep it hood with a nigga, so hand me my dough. I don't play when it comes to bread or the raps. Instead, get to kill a motherfucker till his vocals dead. My crazy hood overthrowing, shut up. Nigga, you see the pistol showing from the CPT. Down with EFN between the beef and the peace, local line is thin. Real in the fake couple lies get in. Who's Eric and where are you from? Well, actually, let, before we do get into that part and we start everything, let's let's uh, preface with uh, the fact that I'm on the eve of my firstborn daughter being born, like literally on the eve of it. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, it's pretty crazy to, to be sitting here and, and, and the reason why we're doing this Family Ties uh, Season 1 podcast is to celebrate the 25 years of crazyhood. So, so it's... I think it means a lot that it's literally on the eve, like probably tomorrow my baby will probably be here. Um, it's a big deal for me. So, and, and another thing added, nothing, nothing to do with that is all facts, as we've seen well, while you've talked to everybody, mm-hmm. are contingent on what I like to call drunk facts. <laughs> um, a lot has happened over the years, a lot of drinking. Mm-hmm. I, like it to call, I like to call it Bacardi brain. Mm-hmm. So we we're gonna try and keep the facts as factual as possible, but you know, a year might be off, a day might be off, a name might be off. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that before we start. <laughs> <laughs> all good, all good. And as I'm having a beer right here, are you drinking? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm having a beer too, La Rubia. La Rubia Brewery. MIA, keeping it MIA over here. <laughs> <laughs> cheers to you. Cheers, to cheers, you. cheers, my brother. Cheers, cheers. All right, cool. So let's begin. So who is Eric, and where are you from? So Eric is um, the child, the, the the only child to two Cuban parents who came to the United States um, in the wave of Cubans that came post-revolution, Castro's revolution, to escape communism. And um, they came in different different ways. They didn't know each other when they came. My dad came on a program called Peter Pan, which which smuggled uh, young men at a certain age. Like it was like the Catholic Church in cahoots with like the CIA or the government or something, mm. the U.S. government, and they were smuggling these 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 boys. I think it was more it was girls and boys, but uh, but I, I know that my dad was in a Catholic school. I think it was an all boys Catholic school, and I think the priest there was instrumental in getting them out. So they were smuggling these kids out, and that's a program called Peter Pan, and he was. Immediately, he came to Miami, and then they they shipped him over to Washington State to an orphanage. Mm. He came without his parents, obviously. And my mom came on another program. Um, I don't know much of the information about it, but it was some kind of program that was was like a deal struck between the the governments of Cuba and the United States. And her and, and her sister came, and they went to California. 
And what was happening at that time, people know Miami now as, as like, you know, Cuba Central, like like the second Cuba. But in the early years of the of, of the migration of people escaping, you know, Castro's Cuba, so the U.S. government, I'm assuming um, it could have been local Florida government, they, they were trying to prevent like a, a big concentration of Cubans in, in South Florida. So they were spreading Cubans throughout the whole U.S. to like soften the impact of, you know, one huge group of people uh, being in one area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I said, my dad was sent to an orphanage in, in Washington State. And my mom and her sister went, were, were sent to California. A lot of some of my family was in, went to Jersey. And so it wasn't it wasn't until like after the, the Mario Boatlift, which everybody knows from Scarface, um, that there were so many Cubans that came that that's, that overwhelmed local government. They couldn't they couldn't organize to move these, you know, spread these people everywhere. And that's why so many Cubans ended up in Miami. But um, yeah, so so my dad was in, in Washington State and when he was of age, he joined the Marines. He volunteered and he went to the Vietnam War. And the Marines, there's a base, uh, Camp Pendleton, which is in California. Mm-hmm. So when he, you know, uh, when he got back from the war, he was there. And then my mom was already in California. And through mutual Cuban friends, you know, they met and they got married and they ended up having me. So I was born in Los Angeles, California, wow. uh, 1975. And we lived originally in Anaheim. And then, um, Later on, you know, with different things that happened, I lived in, in Southgate and Huntington Park and stuff. Because my parents they separated when I was pretty young. So when they separated, I ended up living in Southgate. You actually went uh, back and forth from L.A. to Miami for, for a while, yeah? Yeah, so what happened was my when my parents uh, originally got separated, my dad moved at some point to Miami. Um, I, I laugh about it because if you think about it, it was like, we know now is the, the the mid 80s early to mid 80s as like the the cocaine cowboy days mm-hmm. and i always thought it was interesting that you know imagine a cuban guy ex-marine you know war veteran and then he, when he got out of the marines he went he went to college he did he had the whole gi bill thing mm-hmm. and he he became a like he got like an accounting degree so imagine you have like an accounting degree you're you're a marine you know war vet come to Miami in the heydays of the cocaine cowboys like you know all I know is that yeah my parents were like trying to work it out so like we would come to Miami and we'd be broken LA and then we'd come to Miami we'd be like you know like hood rich mm-hmm. you know my dad would have like a Corvette new Corvette new crib like businesses so you know something was up um but yeah my mom would come over here they'd try to work it out it wasn't, it, it wouldn't, you know, it wasn't working. My, my dad had a lot of issues from the war that I think were unresolved. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and then they had their, you know, their own personal issues that whatever their personalities clash. And, and we would, you know, we'd have to like sometimes leave in the middle of the night, my mom and I back to LA. Um, and, and that happened it, like those years for me because of leaving in the middle of the, like, imagine my mom waking me up in the middle of the night, like, Hey, come on, let's go run to the airport. Cause my dad was, was you know away at night or something he was out mm-hmm. so she's like took the opportunity to, to escape basically wow. so those those years were kind of like blurry for me yeah you know so i don't really kind of remember how many times we did that we did it a couple times um but yeah we moved back and forth and and 
but when we would move back, we'd, we'd stay in like like the Southgate Huntington Park area where my my cousin and my aunt lived in uh, in L.A. Mm-hmm. And then and then we'd come back. And originally, I I, I hated Miami because I, I associated Miami with instability, right? You know. And my dad, you know, I was scared of my dad and I was scared of the, them fighting and him, you know, wilding out. And my dad would have flashbacks and or I thought they were flashbacks from the war. And it was, you know, it was just pretty, pretty scary, whether it be flashbacks, whether it be parents arguing. I just associated Miami with with negativity. And L.A. was my home as a kid. I had my friends in L.A. I had the family that I knew, which was my, my aunt, my uncle, my cousin in LA so I didn't really you know I didn't really care for Miami at at that young of an age Mm -hmm. and my mom and my dad continued to for whatever reason try to work things out so we'd come back and forth and you know it got to the point where I would tell my mom please you know I would beg her don't don't go back Mm -hmm. but we we did come back um and then and then that time frame it was like the final straw and and then maybe I think for my mom, like she just felt stupid going back to LA, and also uh, there was also the thing, you know, my my family's kind of like old school Catholics, so they kind of you know don't really believe in in divorce and and just whatever. And I think it was just a combination of feeling stupid going back and just just a, she just decided, you know what, let me just stay here. Like there's no sense in going back. Right. And she did have, you know, there was she had some friends here and friends from Cuba that were here now that she knew in Cuba, childhood friends. So she knew a couple people, but I think mostly it was just the whole thing of just like not facing, you know, the family one more time. Again, like, you know, you just, again, you're going to come back. Like, I just think she felt stupid. So Miami wasn't, for me, it wasn't home, but that all changed, you know, once we settled here and as time went on and, 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 and as we get more into the story, that's you know where kind of like crazy hood came into into play you know creating that family that that inevitably you know Miami was already my home but I'm just saying like it just solidified Miami being just that place for me right you you've mentioned before uh, that rap is the music of hip hop um, right when did you first discover rap and was it the first genre of music that uh, that you connected with? Um, I don't remember quite when I first heard rap music. Hmm. I'm sure it was like hearing maybe, you know, I don't know. It could have been um, that Blondie record. It could have been easily, you know, Sugar, Sugar Hill Gang, hmm. uh, Rapper's Delight, stuff like that because... You know, that stuff was either on the radio or, like, the breaking movies and, all, you know, all that stuff like that. And my cousins in L.A., they were into, like, 80s pop and disco and stuff like that. Right. And every so often, you would get something that, you know, infiltrated their playlist that had some kind of, you know, rap music in it. Mm. That's probably the first time I started hearing rap music. Um, But as I started getting older... You know, and, and, and here in Miami, I started to hear more of, like, MC Shy D, 2 Live Crew, Gucci Crew, Dougie Fresh, Beastie Boys, Run DMC, LL Cool J. And, and that's when it's, like, really, like, mentally, you know, I knew what I was listening to. But prior to, to that, 
when I came into like my own like musical tastes, I was kind of like into like the rock side of things, like like metal and thrash music and punk. Because mm. I was a skater. Okay. And um, that was kind of like the music that a lot of skaters were into was like you know like the punk and stuff like that. And, and I was just like really into like I guess having the chip on my shoulder with my dad and my mom having all the issues and my dad not being around. Right. Um, now looking back, that anti-establishment, kind of like rebellious music was very, you know, like, like either therapeutic or attractive to me in the sense that, like, I needed to like, like, you know, a lot of that punk and, and, and metal was like angry music. Mm. So I feel like it's, it helped fill the void that um and that's why i kind of gravitated towards it but as as rap you know hip-hop started to to to, you know come around me in a sense you know whether it be through the radio or through friends or whatever or through even movies Mm -hmm. um that slowly started to be a part of like my like playlist like in my mixtapes it would be like i'd have like a megadeth song or an iron maiden song or suicidal tendencies, but then I have like Beastie Boys and Run DMC and Dougie Fresh and Two Life Crew and and you know Ice T or Easy E. That's you know th- th- slowly but surely I started you know like hip hop started to like attract me more and pull me more in that direction. It, it just felt like it was more more the music of of my time of my generation, and I just started feeling more. Uh, it was more relatable to me for some reason, even though maybe not everything that was being said in the music was relatable, but mm-hmm. the music as a whole was more relatable. Okay. Was there a, a specific artist or group that, um, that you gravitated towards? Um, I mean, I definitely listened a lot to like, like I mentioned, two life crew beasties, uh, run DMC, like, that was regular playlist stuff too. So, but the, the, the group that really, or the groups that really like solidified it for me was NWA and public enemy. Mm. And it was just that it was just something about like the emotion that they, that they conveyed through the music. You know, one side was more like a political thing, you know, more a social statement. And, and I feel like NWA I mean, people do give them credit, but I don't think they get enough credit where I feel they are the equal to public enemy and social commentary and political ideology. It's just on some like really raw street. And not to say that public enemy isn't raw street. It was just they had a different approach uh, at it, you know? And I just I don't think up to that point I had uh, like rap music, you know, because I like I at that point, I I don't think I, I understood hip hop as the culture yet. Um, rap music hadn't really hadn't really like had that emotion for me like I hadn't hadn't felt emotion it was just like a straight up you know just music you know to break dance to or or just you know just listen to it wasn't it's more have more fun to mm-hmm. versus like really think or really have feelings where like before like like I said when I would listen to like rock and I don't like really saying rock because I feel rock is sounds way more um, pleasant or or tame like I was listening to straight up like heavy metal or yeah. thrash or punk rock like really hardcore shit <laughs> and you know like you know shit that people would be like yo are you a borderline devil worshiper you know right. like you know so like i was doing some crazy stuff and and you know that emotion was straight anger most of the time mm. um 
And so I hadn't really felt that that in in rap music yet in, until NWA Public Enemy. Mm. And when when I when I felt that vibe off of that, then I was like, man, this 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 is it. Like this is this music really, you know, it's not a fad. It's here to stay. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that I critically thought all these things, but you know, back then, you know, even as a kid, you would hear like people saying that rap music was a fad. Right. Yep. And, you know, once I heard NWA Public Enemy, like, I don't know if I sat there and fucking, you know, I wouldn't write a thesis on it, but I knew, like, this is some serious stuff. Like, this is something that is here to stay, and it it, it was bringing out emotions out of me, and so I, that's when it, like, it captivated me from there on. Like, like, like that's when I kind of, like, made the transition where it was, like, really, like, I, I, I want to dive more into this, this genre of music, which led me to the culture and then I just dove headfirst into the entire culture, mm. which which I already was living the culture. Like, yeah. you know, like I didn't have to know the the name of the culture to, to, to realize that, you know, I am hip hop. You know, like I was already living the culture. You were heavily, heavily into like skating and stuff like that. Was there a, p- a particular person who introduced you to rap music? Yeah, I mean. On the on the professional level, like as a fan of, of skating, mm. like not not friends, I was into I was into the street skater Mark Gonzalez, which which funny enough, you know, I didn't realize it back then, but he was he was like a graffiti artist and, and all that himself, and he was like wow. one of the first like real popular street skaters. So it's funny that I feel like I now that I realize it, like he might have like indirectly influenced me a little bit. Again, like I said, we didn't know we were hip hop. Yeah. We were living hip hop. Like I was already doing graffiti. I was already break dancing, but I wasn't putting all this together and saying, "Hey, this is hip hop," you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is just what we were doing as, as as kids in that generation at that time frame. Like this was all the stuff that 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 we were doing. So that's one aspect of it. But the person that truly like introduced me to the words hip hop and like kind of like enlightened me and opened up that door for me was. There was this friend of mine, you know, we weren't like super close friends, but he was a, a skater that, that went to school. He was a graffiti artist. He was a surfer. And, and this, you know, he's like a popular kid in, in, in junior high. And, yeah. and he would have like a ramp at his crib. And, you know, just kids would go to his crib and just, you know, and, and, and ride the ramp. And, yeah. and I remember one day he was just there. His name was Marcelo. Okay. And, and he was like, you know, we were just talking about like, oh, what kind of music are you into? And I was like, oh, I'm into like, you know, I think I said, you know, like, I like, you know, rap and Guns and Roses and you know, different things. And and then I was like, what are you into? And he's like, oh, I'm into hip hop. And I was like, like taken back, like hip hop, like you know, the words hip hop were being used in the music. I'm sure I had heard it, but that was the first time someone used it in the sense of like, like I like. Like, yeah, he, he meant it as the music, but the way he said it, I don't know, I can't explain it. Like, it just opened up a whole new door for me of, like, what it is, you know, what hip-hop is, you know? Mm. And it's funny, because it came from a fellow skater. That was already living the culture right, of hip-hop, which, yeah. Which is really funny that years later, you know, skating and hip-hop was never, like, synonymous. Like, people never thought of skaters and hip-hop to be together, but it, I, I really like the fact that years later when you had you know like like um what's these dudes name like Tyler the creator and these guys and that like like a bunch of people 
you know, even Lupe Fiasco, mm-hmm. if, you, if you want to add that, skating became eventually synonymous with hip-hop, which yeah. is funny. Was there any particular song with uh, N.W.A. and um, Public Enemy when you first, that was the first song that you heard that really, really pulled you in? I mean, probably the songs that everybody knew, like, like Strata Compton and Fuck the Police. Mm-hmm. You know, straight out of Compton made me scared as shit of Compton. I was like, man, I never want to get caught in that motherfucking place. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. uh, fuck the police, got me angry. And, and, and you know, and, and like, as a skater, we were already on that fuck the police vibe. Because right. as a skater, you're always skating in places that people were always trying to kick you out of. So either the security guards or the cops were fucking with you. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back because I'm brown. selling narcotics you rather see me in the pen than me and lorenzo rolling in a benzo be the police out of shape and when i finish bring the yellow tape to tape off the scene of the slaughter still getting swole of bread and water i don't know if they fags or what such a nigga down and grabbing his nuts and on the other hand without a gun they can't get none but don't let it be a black and a white one because they'll slam you down to the street top black police showing out for the white cop ice cube will swarm on any motherfucker in a blue uniform just because i'm from the cpt punk police are afraid of me huh a young nigga on the war path and when i finish it's gonna be a bloodbath of cops dying in la yo dre i got something to say Skaters were always like, fuck the police, you know? Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, true. So that song resonated with me on levels, on all the, you know, already as a, as a young skater. Right. Um, but, you know, like then, you know, it, it got me angry because then through through Public Enemy and through NWA, not only am I learning about, you know, like the black experience, but I'm also learning and trying to make sense of my experience because, you know, Latinos are not immune to to racism and bigotry like we get it too right and you know maybe it's sometimes you know if we're lucky it's not as as upfront or as bad as the black community gets it uh-huh. you know but but we're getting it just as much and, and that's what i liked about nwa if you if you listen to nwa albums they have always kind of like included like like a latino like a mexican voice in a skit or something or in and in in mention them in a verse because they're going through the same stuff right so they helped me kind of like make sense of some of the stuff that I was dealing with that I didn't really truly understand growing up because what people don't understand about like the Cuban community is that we kind of, at least the generation that my parents came, they they came on some like, and they attached themselves to like the Republican Party, very right wing, because it was the party that was actually, you know, giving all the, the, doing everything against Castro. So they attached themselves to that, you know, Cubans instilled a, a, a a large, larger than life patriotism to this country. They were very grateful to the United States for taking them in. We were, we were one of the lucky, you know, groups of people to migrate to this country that the country opened its arms. Most 
other countries don't have that luxury, you know, like Mexicans or, or, or Central Americans or South Americans or, or other countries, you know, not in Latin America. So, so, so Cubans, for the most part, are super pro-America, pro-Republican. So I grew up on that vibe. So, you know, you're kind of growing up thinking that you're like, you're American, you're as American as an apple pie. But then you start getting, like, shots, you know, at you, you know, by, like, quote-unquote white people, you know, gringos, basically. And mm. as a little kid, you're, like, scratching your head, like, you know, like, yo, you know, I'm, like, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a full-blown American, I'm patriotic, like, fuck the commies, you know, like, my dad fought in Vietnam, you know, we, you know, we'll die for this flag, like, you know, like, we, everything the Republican Party threw out. We kind of like, we're, yeah, fuck that. Whatever you say, you're right, you know. But then I'm starting to, you know, get these things in my life. Things happen in my life that I'm not understanding. And, and hip-hop is helping me disseminate some of these things and, and, you know, and understand the reality of what is America. Yeah. And, and that's kind of like what, what uh, you know, Public Enemy and, and NWA did and, you know, and, and later, you know, hip-hop and, mu- and the music as a whole you know help do for me when nwa split up and ice cube went solo did you feel like a certain type of way like man everything they they've said like what does this mean now or um did you continue just to listen to it and just continue to listen to the message um i mean what do you mean by Everything they said, what does it mean? Now? Like, what what do you mean by that? No, like you know when like uh like when a group splits up, right? And then mm-hmm. you're you're such a fa- like a big fan of them, right? And then when they split up, you know sometimes you you can have like uh mixed emotions, like hey w- wait a minute, like I was fully committed to you, and then you guys split up, like no, well no, because remember this is pre internet days, we don't uh, know that they split up. Oh, that's right. So yeah, so even when I like. So I would go to L.A. almost every summer and visit my family. Mm-hmm. And my grandma would take me. My grandparents lived in uh, in, in Inglewood, in South Central. Mm-hmm. And she would take me to the mall. I believe it's the, I don't know. I don't know what mall that is. It's the, it's the same mall that I think the guy in Boys in the Hood worked in. I forget what mall it is. Crenshaw Mall or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we would go to that mall. And, and, and she would always take me to buy two things. I, you know, she would take me to buy Adidas and take me to the music store to buy music. Right. Because, you know, after the after I had passed the, the buying toys stage. <laughs> That's um, all you wanted. Because before yeah. that, it was just Toys R Us, you know, or a toy store. Yeah. So, so when I went into the, I remember one summer, I forget what year or how old I was, but obviously by what had happened, you, if anybody can do the, the math, they'll figure out what year it is. But I go to the store and NWA is my favorite group. Again, Public Enemy is my other favorite group. And I go into the store, and you know, well, back then, if you were a fan of, of of rap music, there was just one shelf in the store in the music store that had rap music. And basically, you would go to that shelf, and whatever was new, you would usually buy it yep. and check it out because there wasn't that many releases at the time. So anything new on the rap shelf, you would usually buy it. Or try to buy it, or get, or you know, or, or at least pay attention to it. Yeah. So, so I remember she, you know, I walk over to the to the rap shelf and I, see, you know, I see NWA, Public Enemy, whatever, and I see Ice Cube, and Ice Cube was already my favorite rapper from NWA. So when I see Ice Cube, America's Most Wanted, 
I was like, yo, what is this? Like, I didn't know that he put out a, a solo album. Mm. And I bought it, but I didn't, in my head, it's not that they broke up or anything. You know, I didn't know anything about that. Remember, I don't, there's no magazines that I'm getting yet. I, I, the Source magazine, I don't even know if it was around yet at the time. I don't think it was. There was no internet. There was no, no publication, that, at least not for a kid my age at the time, to understand that they had broken up. And, and news didn't travel that fast yet. Mm. And, and, and in that first album, Ice Cube doesn't diss NWA. Right. So if you look at the movie and all that, I think he was he left the group on some like business shit, but he wasn't like leaving them on some like disgruntled shit. He wasn't trying to beef with them at first. Right, right. But, but what was super amazing about that album is that it was produced by the Bomb Squad, which is the production team of Public Enemy. And that, I was like, what the, this is insanity to me. Like, my favorite group is Public Enemy. My favorite group is NWA. My two favorite groups, my favorite MC out of NWA is Ice Cube. And he's got a whole album produced by the Bomb Squad, by Public Enemy, basically. Don't try to apprehend him. Be sure to listen to all the previous episodes of Season 1 of Crazy Hood Story. Available on all digital platforms and crazyhood.com. So when we decided, you know, you and I to do Family Ties, this this, this podcast and this series, uh-huh. the original intent, you know, was to celebrate 25 years of Crazy Hood. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, you know, I wanted to celebrate the people in Crazy Hood and the people behind the scenes and the people that have been the supporting roles in Crazy Hood uh-huh. and, and give them a voice. You know, I've, I've been lucky that as, you know, I'm not an artist in Crazy Hood. I mean, I am, but I'm not like a rapper or anything. But right. b- because I, I do a lot of stuff, you know, I've had the opportunity to have, do a lot of interviews. So my story's basically out there. There's 
there's great, you know, resources to hear my story, which you can hear the the um, Juan Epstein podcast from when I was on it. You can hear the Cypher. Mm-hmm. Um, there's different, you know, like I said, different uh, resources for people to hear my story. We did this so we can hear everybody in Crazy Hood's story and, 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 and get it from, you know, from their from their memory banks of, of, of how they perceived the Crazy Hood story. I thought that was really important. So, yes. you know, I definitely want to get into what, what my story is, but I don't want to go too in deep because I think people could find my story out there. Right. I really want to celebrate the people of Crazy Hood, you know, the, the, uh, the, the crew, you know, and what we are as a, as a team, as a crew, and, and, and the importance of that family. Well, let's get into it. If you could remember, who was the first person that you met in Crazy Hood b- before you actually called it Crazy Hood? Um, that's tough because if if you really want to say the first person that I met before it was Crazy Hood, it would have been my boy Humphrey, mm. who's who's no longer uh, a part of, of of you know the crew right now. He's he's actually he lives in Canada now. Oh wow. <laughs> He was my my best friend in junior high. We were I, got, I was getting into I think he was a skater and I think that's how we started to vibe. And but we got into paintball, mm. and I got heavily into the world of paintball. Like I got deep into the paintball culture. Like like the, if you, like I now that I look back, like I'm the type of dude that if I really am into something, like I go all out. Yeah. I'm not trying to be like that, like weekend warrior or something. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a live and breathe it. Yeah, for sure. And 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 me and Humphrey, you know, we started playing paintball, and it got to the point where you know, we had our, we ended up having our own team, and I was the captain of the team, and we we worked for a paintball field, and we came out in magazines, and we did tournaments, and we got sponsored, and wow. you know, I damn, I damn near went pro playing paintball. The only reason I didn't go pro is because I chose. I chose, you know, my teenage, you know, livelihood, like, you know, just like I was a teenager, you know, starting to, to live life and then basically like concentrating more on, on, on the music and hip hop as a fan, not even as, like I said, not, not professionally, but I'd rather do that than, than put in the work to, to now do paintball. But I could have gone pro on paintball. Wow. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. But, but like, but going back, like, yeah, I had Humphrey was a, was a really close friend of mine at that time, which is funny because then a few years later down the road, my best friend Humphrey and my old best friend um, Donuts converge and in, in, in all being down with me at the same time. Oh, that's cool. So, Very cool. So yeah, it, it wasn't necessarily it wasn't hip hop that made me you know made these friendships, but what what did what was created by hip hop is that when when I ended up in high school and I ended up in, in Sunset, which was all by mere chance because I went to Arvida, this junior high here, and then my school, my high school was supposed to be the school Killian, which I went to. Mm-hmm. I had a shit ton of problems the first few weeks in that school. Um, I got kicked out of the school. I was being sent to, um, they call it like a correctional school, or, or I forget what they call it. It's, it's like a school for bad kids. Right. And my mom somehow worked it out where, where it, they would send me to this other high school, which Humphrey ended up going to because it was in his like district, like where he lived. Mm. But I had to go into um, ROTC, okay, which was fine for me because that was another thing that connected me and Humphrey, which paintball made sense with. I was really into like military, like war shit. I've always been into like history of war and 
and I, I loved it. I, you know, I love that stuff. So I was like, yeah, no, I, I always said to myself, you know, my dad being, you know, a Vietnam vet and all that, I was like, for sure, I'm going to be, you know, join the Marines and, and, and all that shit. So I was like, yeah, no doubt. Throw me in ROTC. No problem. <laughs> you know, so I went to, to Sunset and then, you know, Humphrey was there. So that was an anchor for me. Then I, I you know, I reunited with Donuts, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And then Donuts had known all these other people and which was like Paul and Steve and, and, and all these guys and, and so slowly we started to, to build this, you know, this 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 group of friends and this network, which the big foundation of that was the fact that we all listened to hip hop. Mm-hmm. And, and and like some people had mentioned back then hip hop was was like an identity thing in high school where it's like you, you knew the gothic kids were the gothic kids and mm-hmm. you know the the, the, the jocks were the jocks and then the hip-hop guys were, you know, the hip-hop kids were the hip-hop right. kids. Yeah, right. And, and, and that was for all of Miami, too. Like, the hip-hop community in Miami was so small that there was a point where I could literally tell you that we all knew each other by face. You wow. Know? It, was, it was a couple thousand, several, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe a few thousand people that would go to all the same events that were, quote-unquote, you know, the hip-hop community in Miami. Yeah. But Humphrey, you know, was my best friend for years and when i you know when when the whole idea to move forward with with crazy hood and do music and all that he was right there right right there with me wow and and he helped me you know with he's a real you know he's a serious dude he's he's organized he's legit like he he helped me really like because i wanted crazy to be something serious yeah not just not just this ragtag group of people saying they're gonna do music or saying they're gonna do that i wanted it to be like legit business and and i gotta say that i I have to say that my dad, for all the good and the bad, one thing he's inspired me is that my dad was always an entrepreneur and he was always a businessman. Mm. And so that, I guess, was part of the inspiration. Like, I want to be, you know, I want to be legit, taken serious, like be legit business. Yes. Um. So Humphrey, you know, one of the things that he helped me do is we, we, we incorporated the company together, Crazy Hood Productions, the, the first incorporation, because we've incorporated a couple times since. Okay. But um, but yeah, Humphrey was the first person, man. All right. That I met, man. Not that, not he might not be the first person that accepted or or, or saw the vision of Crazy Hood, but right. he definitely was the first person in Crazy Hood that I had met that became Crazy Hood. Okay, cool. Well, oh. actually, sorry, my bad, my bad. No, no, you. Good. I mean, the, it, see, it gets weird because then I could also say Donuts is too. But the reason why I say is if you're putting it in chronological order, of oh, when I you. met somebody that eventually was in Crazy Hood. I met Donuts in, 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 you know, in elementary school here in Miami. Check out episode 12 of Family Ties to hear the story of how EFM met Donuts. Okay, so the Kendall Park Boys, can you describe uh, those early days uh, prior to CHP and how you guys ended up being called the Kendall Park Boys? Yeah, I mean, we didn't give ourselves that name, the Kendall Park Boys. Okay. I think that was more of like, I mean, if we did, it was more of a joke. Like, I think we either heard people saying it as a joke to us or we joked around. But what it was is that after school every day, we would all get together at this park called Sugarwood, which was by my boy Humphrey's crib. And the reason why I was always there is because I didn't live in the district uh, to our high school. So I would take the bus to Humphrey's house. And then my mom would pick me up later after she got out of work. So we would in the beginning, this is before I had a car or anything like that, we would just go play basketball, 
at Sugarwood, and sometimes, you know, depending on the season, we end up playing uh, football at the park. And so that's that's what we did every day after school. You know, even when I got my car, that you know, that was just our thing because we would just tell everybody, hey, just meet at the park, and people would come. You know, guys would come, girls would come. You know, it just was a, a place to socialize. It was a place where everybody knew to to hang out. And a lot of things happened in Sugarwood, like in places like that, you know, from not just, you know, heated games where fights would break out or people would 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 organize fights, you know, like meet me at Sugarwood and we're going to, you know, like, you know, whether it be gang fights or yeah. individual fights. Like it was just a place where a lot of shit was happening. Right. It all happened at Sugarwood. And, it was in, you know, this is in our in, in the area where we most hung out. And then from there, we would like in terms of the playing sports part. We all, you know, we, we felt like we were a clique from that from that park. So we would go to different parks and play people, whether it be football or basketball. And we would, well, we would go to as far as like Little Havana or Hialeah or or Overtown, wherever. We didn't care. We, we, you know, and that's another side of us that people would say like, you know, these are the, you know, where are you guys from? We're from Kendall. And people were like, what the fuck are you doing all the way over here? Yeah. You know, and we we're playing ball and, and, and you know, so so. People started jokingly saying, you know, you guys are the, the Kendall Park boys. Uh, you know, because so, we were going around repping right. Kendall in all these different parks. <laughs> and we were always at the park. You know, like we were the common denominator. This group of, this one group of people was always at Sugarwood. So it was like, it was like our park. And then we were going around the same group to different parks outside of Kendall, representing Kendall. Right. And, and going in there, and, you know, sometimes getting into beef because, you know, it was very territorial. Right. So... So yeah, I don't know who came up with it, but it was more of a joke. Like you guys are the Kendall Park Boys, but I kind of like, I thought that was kind of funny, and, and you know, I just we just owned it. Like, yeah, we're KPB. Right. You know, we took it as like a crew name, KPB. I don't think everybody that was a part, like that was in the the crew, cared for that name, you know. But I, I liked it. I thought it was funny. Right. <laughs> and, but you know, KPB wasn't anything serious, is what I'm trying to say. You guys were not a gang. You guys were not a gang. The Kendall Park Boys, obviously some people probably, you know, when there's a group of guys together, they would probably believe, oh, they associate you guys or whatever. Paul had mentioned a story about um, you guys getting into, like, this massive fight with, like, 500 people. And... Um, <laughs> he was counting. He's like, one, people, one, two, three, four. <laughs> or you guys were getting into the fight with um, hella people. And then... Um, uh, the story goes where eventually you guys just had to back out. You're running and you were singing 100 miles and running the NWA song. And then after that, you guys had that decision. Yo, the street life, quote unquote, is done. We need to uh, do something better. And then that's where you came up with Crazy Hood. Can you provide some clarity behind all that? Yeah, I mean, that's not entirely accurate. That incident did not inspire Crazy Hood. All right. But that incident did happen. And again, it just goes back to like, you know, young men, especially grouped up, is always going to attract some kind of attention right. and it's from other young men. Right. And what, what at that time, what had happened in that specific situation is, and I think Garcia mentioned to you when, when the hurricane happened, it shifted a lot of people from certain areas in Miami into this area of Kendall called 152 and 154 mm-hmm. avenues. And so you had all these people and a lot, you know, a lot of them were identifying with, with, with some local gangs and, and it was a hot, like that area was just a hotbed for, you know, gang activity and just, just a lot of 
the as a matter of fact the cops used to call it i remember we we, we got pulled over one time and the cops called it a uh, third world they called that wow. that strip those two avenues between sunset and kendall drive at, around that time period um wow so a lot of us lived in that area like a lot of my friends like paul lived right on the ave mm-hmm. um mom and then some other dude that that used to roll with us his dude named lewis he lived on the ave and then he had this big blue truck and blue was you know very synonymous with like this gang out here uh imp mm. they they kind of used i mean we don't really have like colors like that out here but they kind of they rocked blue it was like their color mm-hmm. so i remember one day you know him and some dude you know some of my friends rolled out of his neighborhood and they're like in the back of the pickup and it just always you know we like i said we looked we looked like we were a gang to 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 someone who didn't know any better yeah yeah and um and then some dudes you know said something to him they were picking up i think they were picking up paul from his neighborhood and his little complex and which is on the app and they threw a rock they did something and then my boy lewis started talking shit and then they he came to me and then you know i'm I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do this, whatever, whatever. And then we're thinking that they're, those guys are, are a gang, and we were like, you know, we we wanted to like, you know, fuck that shit, you know, on some macho shit, kid yeah. macho shit. Yeah. And, you know, we, we gathered up, you know, as many people as we could, which I don't know, I think it was maybe top seven of us, maybe. And then we rolled up on the on, on the front of, and this is all in front of Paul's complex, and then we rolled up on, on front of his complex, and long and behold, the whole avenue, like, came out to, uh-huh. to wait for us and it, it had to at the very least be like 30 to 40 people at the least we're looking at being seven to ten people on our end yeah. and then you're looking at like 30 to 40 maybe 50 people on their end that was a huge difference you know in terms of numbers and and you know he told you the story and, and yeah we we realized we couldn't we're not we weren't gonna beat those odds and we had parked like a block away the cars so we had to like you know the, then you know they started chasing us we're running and i yeah i, I do remember singing 100 miles and running and um and that, it was a crazy <laughs> night like a bunch of shit happened our you know our homeboy jj got caught up behind enemy lines and my other boy Humphrey got caught up long story short that ended up being a mistaken identity those guys thought that we were a gang and we thought they were a gang and neither of us were the gang that, that we each thought we were um but yeah, that did happen, and and that was not the reason why um, crazy was was conceived. I just at that time, you know, like that whole like maybe junior year, senior year of high school, we you know I wanted to be very proactive in the hip hop scene in Miami mm-hmm. as a fan. You know, I, at that point, I didn't have anything to offer the scene, so as a fan, I was like, we need to go to every hip hop event, every hip hop party that we can. Uh, every show so you know I, we were able to see like the first time that Biggie came to Miami the first time Wu-Tang came to Miami wow. first time Redman came to Miami like all these first times and I knew at least I did you know I'm sure my friends did but I was witnessing history yeah. and that's what I wanted to be a part of I wanted to say that I was there when these things happened as a fan and I wanted to contribute to the scene not just take from it I, I was you know we were paying to get into these events we were we were going and breaking night and then going out of school the next day. And, you know, we were really, we were really being fans of the scene. You know, we were, we were supporting the scene as fans. Mm-hmm. So that was my goal. But as the, as my senior year started coming to a close, 
And and just to go back to the whole ROTC thing, I got kicked out of ROTC, and I quickly realized the military wasn't really for me because mm. all I cared about the military was give me a gun and point point me where I could shoot it at. Right. And then then quickly in ROTC, I realized I had to salute and and wear uniforms a certain way and and march when I was told to and do push and I was like fuck that shit and right. I got kicked out. So. Uh. Gotcha. So the military was ended up not being an option for me, and I had to think about what was I going to do, you know, for my livelihood, for my life. Right. And I really did have a passion for the music, and I really felt that I had an opportunity because hip hop was still in its infant stages, and in Miami it was in its more of an infant stage. Correct. And so I felt that I could potentially be a part of something at the at least on the local level mm-hmm. and i and you know I, I i can i can get in on it you know and so i decided you know i want to try and do something uh in the music industry and very specifically to hip-hop and i wanted to help build miami's hip-hop scene and mind you we did have you know miami-based music right which 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 when i tell you early on there was no difference between i just want to clear this up there's, there was never a difference between bass and, and, and hip-hop or other rap music at the time early on like when you had like two life crew you could listen to two life crew you could listen to beastie boys you could listen to nwa it was all in the same vein but what happens is as this movement started to happen with the whole new yorkers and and all this other stuff luke and a lot of the djs started to cultivate a sound that was very specific to miami where they were speeding the music up at a certain speed and they were you know bringing up the, the bass lines and it's and the girls were dancing, shaking their, their their asses, and they were calling it, you know, Miami bass or booty music. Mm. And because of that whole rift between like the whole like quote unquote New Yorkers coming to Miami, it started to create this divide within the scene where it was like, this is Miami music, this is bass music, this is booty music, and hip hop is a New York thing. So it created a divide. Gotcha. What I was trying okay. to do because I loved bass music just as much as I loved everything else in hip-hop mm-hmm. you know i knew i felt that it was a part of our miami culture so that to me never changed the only thing is is that i was a huge fan of of hip-hop music in terms of lyrical music right and like boom bap and, and you know it didn't matter to me whether it was new york or whether it was chicago or whether it was la or atlanta i wanted that for miami i wanted to to make you know have miami get respected on, on a on a national level for having, you know, lyrical artists as well, you know, as well as the bass music, you know, I wanted us to have lyrical, you know, MCs that people could respect, just like how, how Bumby and UGK, you know, did it for the South from, from their end, from Texas and Mm -hmm. how, you know, Common did it for Chicago and Ice Cube did it and Ice-T did it for LA and, and, you know, and and Karis one and Rakim did it for New York. I wanted to do it for, for us. So that's that's what I decided that I wanted to do for Miami or, or be a part of that. Mm, okay. and, and then in that ending of my senior year, I was like, what you know, what could what could I do? And I didn't really know what we could do, but I was like, all right, well, sometimes you don't know, but you just got to set things in motion. Mm. And I got to call it something. I got to call this this movement, you know, or this this company or whatever I'm creating. Before I could do anything, I got it's got to have a name, right? 
And I remember, like it was yesterday, I was in my criminal justice class. Like, that's just funny to me. <laughs> of all places. <laughs> of all places. And I was sitting there thinking, and, you know, the word crazy came because I really felt, you know, a little bit out of my mind at times. Right. You know, going back to junior high era, like, I just felt like sometimes I had some loose screws mentally. Yeah. And so, so the word crazy came from, you know, some people think it's on some thug crazy. No, it's, it's on some like, you know, clinical crazy, right. you know, which I feel all of us have that in us, you know, yeah. if unchecked can, can, can be harmful or even sometimes crazy could be, could create beautiful art. So, so that's where crazy comes from. Then hood people confuse it oftentimes, which I don't mind with neighborhood, but right. we don't mean it as neighborhood. We mean it as hood hoodie or hoodlum you know or hood because we the the gear that we would wear our uniform as as hip-hop heads was a was usually a hoodie you know like a champion hoodie because although florida south florida is cold and miami's real cold when you would wake up at six in the morning to go to school and, the, and it's hot outside the school was cranking up the ac like a hospital so you could mm. wear a hoodie in the school wow and and, and 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 that would keep you warm so we would rock you know champion hoodies to school and that was also like the uniform of like like of a hip-hop kid like having a hoodie on right and so you know and then you know you had a hoodie they would call you hood and then hoodlum was just an attachment because you know if you were like you know a hip-hop looking kid you know the teachers would say oh you're a hoodlum you know they thought you were like like a criminal like a thug and you know we just we flipped it and made a negative a positive you know hoodlum we made it as a positive term so hoodie as in the clothing but hoodlum also was an attachment to to you know being a hood and so that's where the hood came from and then to make it professional and make it a, a business I, I had to attach the productions to it gotcha and that's where crazy hood productions came from did you uh paul said it was like a drawing that you created to go along with that vision no no, no there was no drawing no. there was no drawing and and our logo didn't come maybe till maybe like you know what it might have came not too far after i came up with it but i, I don't know i always knew first i don't know why because now when i think back i'm like it, it's not like it, it would be my first choice now but for some reason the old english letters were my first like thing that i wanted for the logo like mm. chp in old English. I have no idea why. Maybe it's my LA roots. I have no idea. Right. I'm, but, and eventually we've seen the old English on a couple of the early versions of the uh, CHP gear. Crazy Hood gear. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, the original logo is, is old English. Right. And then and then one day some, some graphic designer, which was at that time hard to find like a computer graphic designer. Mm-hmm. Um, some guy, he... Actually, a friend of mine, actually, he... He put a loop, like he did something, I guess I guess he had like Photoshop or something. Hmm. He looped, he did a lasso around the old English letters and it it took the letters and it fit into the oval. Uh. And so that became our logo for the, that's the original Crazy Hood logo that I really used a lot, which was like CHP, but it's like oval. Right. It's like and, the, um, the H is like popping out more so than like the C and the P. Right, right, gotcha. right. An event that happened, um, and I know Garcia mentioned it, and you briefly mentioned it, um, is Hurricane Andrew. Uh, when Hurricane Andrew hit, a lot of the schools had to combine together, correct? Mm, not schools. Uh, 
a lot of people had to move from well they went to other schools but they yeah they had to come to like other areas that weren't as affected by the hurricane so you had a bunch of people from different areas of miami all in one area now and and those kids going to that school okay so um how did that hurricane impact uh kendall besides you know from what you were saying a little earlier and do you believe that it played a role in the future of crazy hood um I don't know. I don't know that it played a role. It's definitely a marker, like a like a life marker for for there's before Andrew and there's after Andrew, and that goes mm. for probably anybody in South Florida. Um, I guess it did in a sense because there was friends of mine, like like I told you, I used to play paintball, so there was these friends of mine that lived in Homestead, they lived in Cutler Ridge, mm-hmm. that ended up coming to sunset to my school and so like i felt like almost like it's almost like a gang you know recruiting Mm. you know members of people they already knew like oh my homie's here like come on you know join us and so you know like our numbers grew stronger and and so in that sense i guess you know because you know the the stronger the bond the, the, the the stronger the group the more confident you are to go around and do things right um but it was this is all post not post. This is all pre uh, Crazy Hood, right? Leading okay. up to Crazy Hood, and it's funny because once Crazy Hood was literally created, some of these people, um, kind of like, like there was like, you know, you know, when you're starting to end your high school years, and, and it's funny because you look at all these old movies that depict like the kid, you know, like the one, like I don't want to say white kids, but you know, like these kids talking about like. You know, they get their best friends all through high school, and then one of them is going to go to a different college than the other one, and they get all mad at each other. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, like all those, like, comedies or, or high school movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, for us, it was, you know, we not necessarily college, but it was just like, you know, what what, what direction were you going to go in? Were you going to, you know, start something of your own, and maybe mm. some one of the people didn't, you know, didn't like it? It, it just, we started to, like, that crew that was like, I guess, quote unquote, KPB. Um, and we also used to call ourselves Hit Squad. Okay. Which was actually, you know, was actually just <laughs> biting off of um, EPMD and their crew, which which I loved the whole Hit Squad crew. And just that that's that was a big influence on me creating Crazy Hood. Mm. Mm. And, and eventually, you know, creating the Alliance because it was, Hit Squad was made up of Daz Effects and Redman and K-Solo and, right. and, you know, EPMD and all these guys. So, it was a collective of all these talented people and they were just one amazing crew. And so we used to call ourselves that, but not like on some serious, like professional shit, just like me emulating, you know, hit squad. Like we would call ourselves hit squad. But, you know, as, as the year started, you know, ending our senior year and then we started to go in, you know, like different directions. And I'm like saying, look, I'm going to go, I'm going to go in a serious direction. now. like, I want to create this company and I want to do music and I want to, I want to, be a proponent of hip-hop from miami mm-hmm. some people around me were thought it was ridiculous mm. and right. they're just like come on man like from kendall you know first of all from miami hip-hop from miami you're not you don't have no connections you you don't you're not in new york you're not in la you have no industry ties you know mm. you don't even have any any talents like you you know you're not you're not you don't have artists you're not an artist you're not a DJ. you're not anything because mm-hmm. i didn't have turntables yet to be a dj yet yeah. So, um, some people thought it was ridiculous, but some, you know, a few people were like, you know what, like, fuck it, I'll ride with you. One of those first people was Paul. 
And so some other people, though, in this, you know, you imagine we're like 20 people in the crew. Some of some other people were like, you know, man, fuck that. And there was actually like a little bit of like beef and some riffs early on wow. when I made that decision because I, I, I can't explain why, you know, but it, it just some, you know, some other people splintered and started to create like their own little cliques. And, and but then rather than just go on and do their own cliques, they started to catch beef. You know, like they started like talking shit. And they, it was like it was a little rough patch in the beginning. When I set off to do Crazy Hood, and um, but that's gonna happen when it's that many people, for sure. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I lost track of what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, no, it, it, how if Hurricane Andrew had like a an effect on that, and uh, if it shaped well, yeah, the that's future. What I'm saying yeah. because some of the guys that had that riff with me were some of the guys that moved up from the south when Hurricane Andrew hit. Hope you're enjoying the season finale of Family Ties, a crazy hood story. Make sure to support Paul, aka Weird Thoughts, as he has his own podcast called Dream Big Hip Hop, available on crazyhood.com, YouTube, and all digital platforms. Let's tap back in with EFN as he tells his crazy hood story. Okay, so you create Crazy Hood Productions. Paul is one of the first ones where he's like, yo, I'm a ride with you. So what is, what's next? What was next in the, uh, in the, um, creation of the, of the company? I had to figure out what is it that we're going to do. Okay. You know, like, and at that time, the other examples in Miami of people doing anything hip hop related were doing parties and events because that's the only thing we could do is, at least, at the very least, create, you know, these events where other like-minded hip-hop heads can come and, and you know, like, create a community. Right. And I remember there was these other dudes, um, Mad Squad, that they used to be around, um, the homie uh, DJ Epps' crew, Night Breeders, was probably, you know, starting maybe a little bit before us or around the same time, and they were doing a lot of stuff, and, and there was other, other crews and, and production outfits Mm-hmm. So, so creating events was like the the only the the go to thing to do. There was nothing really else we could do at the time, and so, and again, I wanted to be a DJ, but I didn't have the turn. I didn't have the money to, to buy my turntables. Right. Okay. And maybe right around, and this is all ninety three, so maybe right around that time, I'm able to get my first turntables, which were I got a, a starter package, a DJ starter package out of the back of the Source magazine. Wow. And um, and I, I think my dad helped me buy those. Like I think I asked him for some bread and this. You know, my dad was he he started coming back around when I was like seventeen, eighteen, and he was he was like in and out, but he was, he was around. So you know, he I I do credit him with you know helping finance some of these things that I was trying to do. Like I'll be like, yo, you know, you lend me some bread for, to do this or do that or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he would help me out. And I also another thing that I did. Um, I think Drain touched on it, and he actually reminded me is at that time they used to give credit to 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 the young teenagers. I don't know, you know. Now they it's illegal, like they um they call it predatory lending. Mm. But I was able to get credit cards, and what I was what I learned to do quickly was pay like get one credit card, max it, then get another, apply for another one with more of a credit line, and then pay out, you know, buy out the other card. Oh yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> and then that other car would give me a higher limit because it's like, oh shit, you just pay that off, 
and I would be, keep bouncing that off. And that's how, I, like, that's really how I like early financed a lot of things too. Wow. And um, you know, and then we all did like minor street things here and there, like little things, mm-hmm. um, to finance things, you know, and little hustles, and everybody had a hustle of some sort. But for sure, so those were the ways that I was financing. So I got my 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 turntables, but I was just starting and. The turntables you got from that pack were like Gemini turntables, which were horrible. They were belt drive. Mm. So I was just starting to, to spin. There was no way that I was going to present myself as a DJ out you know, to the public yet. Right. So while I'm you know, starting to practice and get my shit together on the DJ front, I said, okay, let's go ahead and do a, an event. And we did our first party. It was at my boy's uh, car body shop, my boy Lewis. He's one of the dudes that I told you that, that came from from Cutler Ridge area. Well, he came from the Country Walk area after the hurricane. Mm. And um, and he's the guy with the blue truck <laughs> that caused the problem. Mm. And it was his parents had a car body shop right here, uh, actually not too far from where I live now. Mm-hmm. And on Friday, you know, they would close the body shop for the weekend and then, you know, resume business on Monday. So he was like, look, on Friday when my dad leaves and everybody leaves, We'll come in there, we'll clean up the place, and we'll throw the party in there. Mm. But back then, parties isn't like a, like you just call a couple people. Like you treated it like it was a club. Right, right. So we were promoting this with a flyer for like maybe like <laughs> two weeks, three weeks. Mind you, while this under the nose of his pops, you know, who if he would have known, would, would never allow this shit. Wow. So uh. his pops leaves, you know, like around, I think he left like at four, three or four o'clock that day on friday and then we went to cleaning the whole crew went in there moved the cars around cleaned up the place you know my i had some boys that would that were djs you know i had them commence bring the dj equipment it had like a second little floor loft area like a storage area that that's where we set up the dj equipment mm-hmm. um bernie mentioned to you that i did his you know i he his first show was with me that was the where he performed him plex I remember he said he didn't know where his boy knew me from. Right. It was his today. boy is Tori. He went to Arvida Junior High with me. And that's uh, how he knew me. Gotcha. So, I don't know. Somehow I got, you know, I got in contact or I saw Tori somewhere in the streets. And back then, if anybody rhymed in Miami, you knew who they were. And, and, and my whole thing was like, that was a big deal to me. Like, an MC repping Miami, I'm going to support that in any way possible. Right. And, and so when he told me he was, you know, he had a group and they were rhyming, they were from Kendall. I'm like, come on, I want you to perform at my event. That's and cool. so they performed and and that we, we, the event, like, and because there wasn't that many hip hop events at the time, people from all over Miami came. Like, this shit was jam packed. Yeah. But unfortunately, we had an issue where it was like some local gang members and some local, like, hip-hop crew but this crew might have been involved in some other stuff they had it they had it out and there was a shootout that broke out at the the party someone got shot the cops came shut it down and and you know the cops told us that they ever see chp on a flyer they're gonna shut down the event or arrest us or whatever um and that was that but you know how shit is like now our name the event was, you know, until the shootout was dope. Like, it was jam-packed. <laughs> right. It was popping. We had people performing. You know, the DJ was killing it. And and then we had a shootout. But the shootout kind of made it, like, infamous dope. Like, 
Like, yo, you know, you know, kids go back to school. Like, yeah. yo, you went to that party? Yo, this fucking shootout. This shit was crazy. Shit was dope. You know, like, had so people talking. Our game was, was synonymous with, like, a dope-ass party that also had, you know, like, like had some street shit pop off, you know, so it was, like, the talk of the town. Mm. So it actually kind of helped the brand. You know, right. <laughs> yeah. you know it did what it did. Right, know? So. Sure. So you know, um, and so when you first, and when you said uh, go back to go back a little bit, when you said Bernie, you mean Burns, right? Burns from Made It. Okay, yeah. got you. Okay, cool. Which I didn't know him yet. I didn't know Plex. I knew their their other boy Tory. He he had another name for him. I think uh, I don't know if that was his rap name, but uh, but Tory was the dude that I knew that knew them. That was in the group, and then all the King's Men was the name of the group, and then the DJs was my boy Adiac and Triste who are both uh, West Coast transplants. Mm. Um, and, and just as a side note, how there was the New Yorkers, there was a there was a group of California transplants in, in, in South Florida, and they were uniting also as a crew, and they were calling themselves the California Drifters. Uh, interesting. And they, they got, you know, they had, you know, they, they had the same issues as the New Yorkers. Like, they were, all, they were clashing with local gangs and, and also clashing with New Yorkers, and, and they had their own thing going on. Right. And I got to know them because when they found out I was from California, they were like, yo, you got to be a part of this. <laughs> <laughs> when you knew that you wanted to do something in hip-hop, right, mm-hmm. how did you know that you wanted to be a DJ? Because my, for as long as I can remember, uh, and, you know, this is watching mostly music videos more than anything, uh-huh. uh, you know, UMT raps, more than anything and then later on rap city and then the box when you're watching these videos the the person that really you know i gravitate towards was the dj like i thought that's who i wanted to be was you know eric b dr dre dj yellow um terminator x uh jazzy jeff these are the guys you know that i wanted to be so that's it was just no question for me that that the DJ is who I, I wanted, that who I identified with and who I wanted to be. So you started doing the parties. You you didn't DJ them yourself. You had uh, other other DJs come in. How long was it between um, when you got your, your set of turntables and you were doing the parties until you started to actually DJ parties? Well, there's a, there's an important piece that, that's missing that um it's that no one had brought up. Okay. That I wanted to bring up. Where so between time where we did that first party that got shot up, mm-hmm. which I had I had already had my first turntables. Right. But I was just practicing. I was just getting you know my feet wet DJing, and, and before that I was making like pause tapes. I don't know if you know what pause tapes are. Yeah. It's two tape decks. You know I was making pause tapes for my friends, but whatever. But nothing was you know it was all amateur shit. Mm-hmm. So right after that party, you know. The shootout, you know, and all that didn't didn't deter me from wanting to continue to move forward, and 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 it only, if anything, it it gave me more fuel, right? Because you know how many people showed up, and I was just like, man, like this is really what I want to do. Like I want to, I want to be a force to reckon with, and I want to really add to the city scene. Yeah. And um, but but again, it, I always go back to like I didn't know anybody, I didn't know anything, I didn't have. You know, I wasn't going to college yet. I, I, I was. I think I waited a year before I started community college. Um, and even if I was going to community college, I was only going to go to to appease my mom. It wasn't really to study anything. But I did end up trying to study uh, 
business. Okay. Um, and and whatever. So so the thing is, that I didn't know anybody, and I didn't know any, and I didn't know anything about the business. But I knew I wanted to do it. So all, what I was doing, I was just reading all these articles of of groups and companies within hip hop that I that I could identify with or that I thought. You know, I could learn something from some. I'm learning from like Rap a Lot Records, from Ruthless Records, from Luke Records. I'm reading all the articles, you know, interviewing all these guys, you know, Uncle Luke and Easy E and um, uh, Jay Prince. And then when, you know, Wu Tang came out, I was like really, you know, impressed by, how, you know, how the, the unity of all these artists and the deal that they got at, at, at Loud Records. And then, you know, like I told you, Hit Squad. So I'm, I'm absorbing all this information now. Yeah. I still need like real time experience, in, you know, to to really learn more, like like on the job training type of stuff. So right. there was this. So I, I mentioned to you there these guys DJing called uh, Adiac and, and Triste. Mm-hmm. The West Coast so Adiac, guys. Yeah, the West Coast dudes. Mm-hmm. They Adiac was a part of a group called Mundi Dialect, and I think Nick Fury mentioned them to you. That's when he first met me with them. So Mundi Dialect. See back then. If someone put out a, a vinyl or a, or a, like a tape or a CD, like legitimately, that was something to really like. That was impressive. You know, that set you aside. Like back then, not anybody could just put out music, right? Because there was so it was so difficult to a get in the studio, b find an engineer and a producer, c uh, master it, and d press it up and then release it. It's mm. a lot of work. The average person could not do that. Yeah. So it didn't matter even if your music was whack. If you could do all those things, you were already ahead of the game. Right. You know, people had to pay attention to you, you know, sure. even if the, the music wasn't that good. So, so these guys, they had a record label called Salient Records. They 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 had pressed up a, a, a single, and it was on vinyl, and that and and they were promoting it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I was super impressed by this, and so. I don't remember how I met them, but I, I remember I, somehow I met them. I, maybe it was when I met them for the to, to DJ the, the event. It might have been through that. Mm-hmm. But Alfonso, which was one of the MCs and also the guy who ran the record label, um, I remember I stepped to him and I was like, look, man, I'm down to do whatever. Like, I just want to be, like, basically I wanted to be their intern, his assistant. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, to get the experience of being around some people actually doing what I wanted to do. Right. And that's how Nick Fury ended up meeting me because that was probably one of my first or second, because they would have like little meetings at their crib and I would go to the meetings and I would just be there and whatever they needed me to do, I would do it. If they needed me to go, you know, promote something or, or, or make a call for them, whatever. Like I was, whatever they needed me to do, I was down to do it. Right. And it was because of them that, I actually really, really like solidified me doing what I do now because I, I I tend to think of myself as like an antisocial, like not sociable type of person. All right. I'm not <laughs> I'm not really about that public life. Yeah. It's, as odd as that seems. Right. And um, they were they had they were opening up for Redman, mm. and it might have been like the second time Redman came to Miami or something. So it was a big deal. And they asked me to introduce them on stage. Wow. And I had never been on a stage. Never never got on a mic and talked to a club full of people. So as you can imagine, I was like, oh, fuck, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I went out there and I did that, 
And I came back after the stage, and I was like, I can do this. That's cool. You know, like I, I, I could really do this, and it, and it, and it convinced me that any hesitation I have about anything like that, my passion for the for the culture overpowered it. Right. You understand? So I always use that that moment for me because whenever I'm hesitant or whenever I'm worried about something or I second guess something, I'm just like, you know what? I truck through it because I always know that my intentions and my passion for what I'm doing is going to overpower that and is going to and, and it's it's going to make sure that whatever it is goes well. Like even if it doesn't go well, like I'm going to get through it. Right. And um, and yeah, man, I, working with these guys and. and and, and being a fly on the wall and, and assisting them, it really, like, really helped me, you know, gain a lot of knowledge that I needed, and 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 it just helped me a lot. And that's why, like, I always, you know, even like with you or with other people, like, mm-hmm. I tell people, like, you know, if you can get yourself in a situation where you could be around people that are doing something that you want to do, like, by all means, put yourself in that situation, and go yeah. out there. Like, some people nowadays, I feel like. You know, young people nowadays, they don't see the value in, in interning or they don't see the value in, in doing something for free, quote unquote. Yep. But it's not free because you're getting something that's invaluable from those experiences. Very true. Yep. So, so yeah, man, like like Mundi Dialect, Salem Records, Adiac, Alfonso, Dizzy, also DJ Triste, like those guys, um, what I gained from working with them is super invaluable to, to what we do today in Crazy Hood. And also through them, I met Nick Fury, which, which you know, we can continue to talk about his huge impact and what, what we ended up doing as well. All right. Yep. When did you start uh, actually um, doing shows for yourself, like DJing them? So first I started doing the mixtapes. Oh, mixtapes um, came first. <laughs> Yo, what's up? This is Kanye Tudor. You tune in to DJ EFN, the mixtape king. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the mixtapes definitely came first. Uh, I started putting out mixtapes because that's how I started to get my confidence in putting something, recording it, and putting it out there and seeing what people, what the feedback would be. Okay. And if people thought that that was cool, then I got enough confidence to say, fuck it, let me just do this live, you know? Mm. Okay. Did and mind you, you oh, go ahead. again, my thing is that I've never, like, if I if I had been a, a perfectionist at everything I I have done and do, mm-hmm. nothing would have ever gotten done. Right. My whole thing has always been: is am I passionate about what I'm doing? Do I you know do I care about what I'm doing? Am I do I have the right intentions? Sometimes that super you know, well all the time for me it supersedes like a hundred percent perfection because nothing I ever did like with the mixtapes was ever perfect. You know, I have, I have so much appreciation and, and admiration for DJs like DJ Craze and, and you know, like I, I told you about this, the, the Visible Scratch Pickles on the West Coast mm-hmm. and, and the X-Men and all these people and these amazing turntablists and DJs, like, I could only wish that I had the skills that these guys had. And I have so much respect for, for turntablism and DJing that I would never put myself at and say I was I was such and such type you know I was the dopest DJ like this I was just someone that really really was passionate about the culture and passionate about the culture and was going to move forward and I was going to give my two cents and it was up to you know the the person out there to to like it or not like it you know gotcha yeah 
And that's what I did with the mixtapes. I put them out there, I pumped them out. But my whole thing was, all right, I'm going to, what I'm going to do to set me apart is I'm going to be consistent with the mixtapes. I'm going to make quality products. Like, you know, you're going to have covers with all the track listing and the tapes are going to look consistent. And then eventually I started doing like the legit retail looking tapes and Mm -hmm. shrink wrapping. And I'm going to pump them out there in the, in the hundreds and then thousands and, 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 and get them distributed and, and, and that's what I did. You know, people could count on my product coming out. Right. And they can count on my consistency. And then on top of that, I was going to be consistent with repping Miami and repping Kendall. Two things that was hard to find at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and not so people don't misunderstand. Crazy Who was definitely not the only crew repping Miami in terms of hip hop. There was other crews and other companies out there. The only thing that ended up happening with us in terms of a lot of our peers is that we, we, we were able to somehow continue and be consistent and, and, and maintain ourselves and be here today, which a lot of our peers couldn't be here. And then that, that, that the mixtapes is what eventually, like I told you, led to me doing events. That was like the natural progression of me spinning at parties. And I think the first one we did was like in 90, end of 94, maybe, maybe early 95. Um, we did our own party at this, we called it Club Downtown. It was in a, in a, a lounge, a sports lounge in a, in a hotel, the Travel Lodge Hotel in, in downtown, right by the courthouse. Mm-hmm. And um, we did that. And then, and then I started DJing at, at different clubs in Miami Beach. Uh, um, you name it. Like my first, like, like back then, Miami Beach was like, you know, South Beach, like, ooh, South Beach. That was like, where the, as a DJ you wanted to be able to get a gig on South Beach mm-hmm. and it was hard hip hop parties were very hard to, to come by and, and South Beach was really funny about hip hop and mm. you know they were really racist towards it and, and you had like the Italian mob and, and, and different people who ran the beach so it was really really tough to get in there but uh, my first gig was you know the, the actor Mickey Rourke yeah he had a club called Mickey's and um and and I remember that I had to try out. Like I went there, I, I offered my service. I think I gave a demo tape, mm-hmm. and they told me to come by. And back then, if you were a hip hop DJ in Miami, you had to be able to DJ hip hop, R and B, and reggae because wow. all that went together, you know. And so I was a huge fan of reggae because before there was any hip hop clubs, you had to go to reggae parties to hear hip hop. Like I would go to like these parties called Medusa and. And there was this place called Lime Key. So you would go to like the reggae jams because in, in for them, the break was playing hip hop. And that's mm. where we would go as hip hop heads to hear hip hop. So then naturally you're going to love reggae, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so I had a homeboy, Bruce, who was uh, Jamaican, who had a store and he was getting 45 records directly from Jamaica of the newest reggae coming out. And I would go to him and he would just put together the newest you know hottest records for me so i didn't even have to do the research nice. he's like yo here you go bro trust me play these rhythms and you're good and i would get them boom and then i remember i went to mickey's that the one night that i had to like try out mm-hmm. and then here i am this cuban dude walking up they, they they expected me you know to come in on the hip-hop stuff but then i hit him with the reggae set and i killed it wow. and they were like and i remember my homeboy that we know to this day, this, this he's I think he's Cuban Jamaican because he would do the patois. He's and he's a he's a dope MC. His name's Infinite, 
he was there and he was like he started doing like you know you know when people are playing like the reggae sets the guy on the mic doing all the patois mm-hmm. doing all the noises like bah, 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 yeah. you know like, <laughs> so he, he was doing, doing that it? he was going he was going crazy for me and he and then you know I got the gig I, I got the gig my first official like club gig not because of my hip hop set but because of my reggae set wow did you already go by DJ EFN at the time or did you have uh various uh stage names um no i i went as efn from any point that any that i put anything out professionally meaning like you know from that point on on a mixtape or anything like that or on a flyer i was always efn but before that i had played with names like dj e funk and then (laughs) another name i had was funk e And then I was like, you know what, man? Let me just keep it simple. And I just took my initials and, and made it EFN. Very dope. Cool. Um, Paul had mentioned a story um, that when you guys uh, took a trip up north to New Jersey and you hit up a lot of those record stores in that area and in the New York area as well to get like the exclusive music. How important was it to not only get the music, but to experience New York as that's, you know, the place where hip-hop was born. I mean, I had gone to, to New York before because my dad actually um, at one point lived in New York. He he worked um, in Times Square. He had an office. Oh, okay. And I had gone um, actually my senior year or the year before that. A couple times I had been to New York. Mm-hmm. So New York wasn't anything new to me. But obviously, yeah, as a hip-hop fan, when you go to New York, you really feel like you're in the Mecca and... and it was such a huge difference in terms of like how they supported and played hip hop in New York, like on the radio and, and how you would see clubs all over the place, you know, promoting, you know, hip hop events. We didn't have that in Miami yet. It wasn't as prevalent it was, as it was over there. So you really felt like, like, wow, like this is like, this is really where hip hop lives, you know? Right. And, 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 and that wasn't just exclusive to New York because let me tell you, um, visiting my, my cousin in LA, Mm-hmm. Some of those summers when I was in high school, I felt kind of the same way in LA as well because I remember going over there and listening to the Baker Boys mm. and hearing hip hop over there. And what I loved about LA that really made me even like, like more like, I guess, kind of gave me that whole idea of like supporting hip hop from wherever it came from as long as it was good. Mm-hmm was the Baker Boys and the way that I felt that LA LA radio at least was doing it. And you know, when when you go to New York you would only hear like really like straight up artists from New York. Right. But when I would go to LA I would hear all the top shit from, from New York, but I would hear LA artists, I would hear outcasts, I would hear, you know, common, I would hear Chicago artists, Texas artists. They were just playing what whatever they thought was dope hip hop and they were just playing hip-hop. Like, it didn't matter where it was from as long as it was just dope hip-hop. Mm. And what's funny about about the Baker Boys, which which it, it is really crazy that we eventually got to build a friendship with them, that that one year that I remember very specifically was the year that um, the group Lords of the Underground came out with that song, Funky Child, mm. and Chief Rocka. And and that, that that song was just killing it on the radio. Yeah. And I remember they said something like, you know, if you you know if you want to say something or you want to shout out, you know, I think they said give us you know give us a card, fax us. And my cousin had a fax machine, and I literally faxed them 
to say, you know, like, yo, this, you know, I think, oh, I think they said to request a record. And I requested Lords of the Underground, I think, um, uh, Chief Rocka, and I put CHP. And that was the first time that CHP was ever mentioned on the radio. Wow. And it was the Baker Boys introducing, they were like, you know, shout out to Eric from Miami. Uh, it was Eric, wasn't even a fan yet. <laughs> and they were like, Eric from Miami, you know, shout out CHP. Here's, you know, here's, uh, you know, Lords of the Underground. Funky Chuck, I mean, uh, uh, Chief Rocker, and and that was, you know, like I was like, what? Like I remember I recorded it. I have it somewhere on tape. Oh, that was dope. dope. In my head, I'm like, we made it, we made it. You know, like, <laughs> like that was huge to me. And then I came back to Miami, and and then a few years later, the Baker Boys ended up doing radio in Miami, and we ended up linking with them here. But before that, I had met their older brother, um. In, in, in How Can I Be Down in, in Jamaica, which is, you know, other story that we can get into. Yeah, well, so you're doing, uh, you, you got your gig at uh, Mickey's. Are you already having uh, CHP meetings? Um, yeah, I think that, that shortly after that first event that we did, um, we started to have meetings if I'm not wrong, at my dad's house. My okay. dad had a crib over here in Kendall, and he, you know, I live. I did not live with my dad, but I put all my um, turns. I put my turntables in his crib, and I made like a record, like a studio record room in his crib. Okay. And that's where we would have the meetings. And one thing too that that I don't want to skip over is like the first thing that I started to do to put all the stuff that I had learned with, with Mundi Dialect and Assailant Records to practice mm -hmm. was developing and financing and producing a demo for a group called Poetic Symbols, which Drain was a part of. Uh, okay. And which was Drain and some other friends of ours from high school that was kind of like Drain's crew. Mm -hmm. And they were my friends as well. Right. And, um, and we made a demo with them through using, you know, I, I, I was taking classes at Miami Day just to get studio time, and Drain was taking classes, and we, we did a demo, and I did a photo shoot, did their bio pictures, and bio, and, and you know, pressed up the tape, and that was the first thing that I took to the, to the first uh, convention, which is How Can I Be Down, that I went to. How important was it to attend those conferences, and uh, not just as a DJ, but as a crew? It was vitally important, man, because that was, I saw that as the only chance that we would get at net, being able to meet and network with people from the industry. Mm. There was no other way that we would have a chance in this, in this business without meeting people. And that was our only chance to meet people. And so, and if we were going to meet them, we had to make an impact right. and we had to be memorable. So I wanted to. To, to show like a crew of people, you know, in unison that, you know, you would say, you know, that these people would see and be like, like, yeah, I remember those, you know, those dudes, like a bunch of dudes wearing the same shirts or whatever, you know, like I just wanted to make an impact. And, yeah. and how can I be down, you know, was, was, was that for us? And although, you know, I realized quickly that how can I be down for the industry or for these executives or whoever, the artists, quickly became like a vacation for them they weren't really trying to do business like real business uh, okay but we had to make it you know work for us as best as we could and, and, and that first year was real special the first year that how can i be down happened or at least the first year that it was 
It might have happened. I don't know if it happened. Well, yeah, it did happen before the year we went, but it was a lot smaller. But there was the one year that it really blew up, and um, and it was just special because these artists weren't used to people like recognizing them outside of like their cities, right. and it was exciting to you could still go up to like a Busta Rhymes or a Biggie and like say what's up and they would be like wow you know like they would be excited mm-hmm. that that people knew who they were outside of their their prospective cities and they would be more than happy to take pictures and more than happy to do a drop and and the take getting drops from those artists is what started to really set my mixtapes apart mm. because you know to have a guy from Miami shouting out Kendall and have a drop from Biggie or have a drop from from you know Helter Skelter or have a drop from Guru or 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 you know whoever like the Method Man that was huge and and I'm not talking about freestyle I'm talking about just drops yeah, yeah. that was huge huge so if you were a regular fan of the music and you got a mixtape and this is the guy talking about Miami you know typically you're Typically, your own people in your own city hate on you. That's just normal. Facts. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so when they hear something that they're a fan of on your shit that they're trying to hate on, they're like, fuck. Fuck, I can't really hate on this too much. This motherfucker's doing it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's the type of stuff that started to change the tides for what, for what we were doing with the mixtapes and for Crazy Hood and the brand. Because when you have at that time a Method Man or, or, or whoever, whoever the biggest artists is at the time were saying, you know, EFN, saying Crazy Hood, like, like people couldn't neglect that. They couldn't deny that, you know, we're, we're in the right place at the right time doing something. And what happens is people bandwagon. They're like, fuck, man, these people are obviously meeting people. So do I hate or do I, you know, like try to like, you know, like, let me, let me, let me like it now in case it pops off. <laughs> right. So those 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 uh, conventions were vital, man. I, I I got to meet people. I went to panels. I remember a huge eye opening thing for me was being on a like sitting in on a panel, and it was something having to do with publishing or business. And uh, Chuck D from Public Enemy was right like in the sitting in the audience with me. Wow. And he like they were like, does anybody have any questions? And he raised his hand and asked a question, and I looked back. And this is already well past Public Enemy's prime. Like, not. I mean, they were they're still big at the time. But I'm saying, like, they were already big. It's not like Public Enemy was new. Yeah. You know, they were already huge. And I look back and I'm like, fuck, man, this is a reality check for me. That if if he still got questions and he still thinks he needs answers to things, then I got a long way ahead of me. You know. Right. Going to the those conventions. Did you make any? Did you make any uh, networks that you still work with today and are and became great friends with today? Maybe not the first one, uh-huh. but definitely throughout the the throughout the couple that we went to. I, I know we went to a couple. How can I be downs? And another memorable one was one that happened in Jamaica, which definitely a lot of memorable stuff came out of that one mm-hmm. that we could talk about. But just the fact that also beyond. The people at How Can I Be Down, you got a, a chance to talk to Phil the Mayor, who uh, yeah. who does live. You know, he's a part of Live. He has a clothing brand, mm-hmm. old friend of ours. You know, he was a big part of of How Can I Be Down. He worked with the guys, the Thomases, the Thomas brothers, who 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 were the organizers of it. And you know, I I mean, you know, I was able to deal with those guys and meet those guys throughout the years, and mm-hmm. and those guys were you know 
I still, you know, I still feel we still know each other to this day. And, and I, I just think that maybe I didn't meet people that I, I can tell you that I know today that were instrumental, but I think our, my name as a brand, the company as a brand, the crew mm -hmm. as a brand from Miami, I think other people recognized us or noticed us. And one of the things that I always try to explain to people is that there's never one thing that people are going to know you for, probably. Right. It takes, it, you know, I mean, typically, like, some people are lucky. You know, there are, there are lucky artists, there are lucky people in this world that one thing and the boom, it pops. Mm -hmm. For the average person, it takes a lot of a little things. Yeah. A lot of little things start to create a big thing. But what happens is people don't remember all the little things. They just remember that something led up to a lot of, you know, to the big thing. Right. So what I'm trying to say is that my, my philosophy and my strategy has always been consistency and persistence. Keep the brand consistent. Keep out there. And what happens is people eventually start to say, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know the offense. Or yeah, I've heard of Crazy Hood. Or I know that They might not quite remember where, when, but they they know it, and they know it's not something new. They know it's not something inauthentic. They know it's it's not a fickle brand. It's something that's been around. Right. It's sometimes they just can't pinpoint when they first found out about it. But all those how can I be downs were part of the of that branding and of that of that solidifying of our brand out there. What was really dope about Jamaica is a couple things happened, and I'm. I'm You know, I don't. I don't expect Phil to remember this, but I remember this. They had an issue in the how can I be down Jamaica where they couldn't get their stuff in through customs in Jamaica. Mm. So typically, in these conventions, they have like branded like samplers and things that all the different labels had kind of sponsored and put their their new songs on, and that became like the, the soundtrack of the convention. Mm -hmm. They couldn't get the stuff in. So, and then they were, you know, they were, they were going to have these, these soundtracks or these CDs or, or tape samplers or whatever playing in all the taxis and playing in the lobby of the hotel. Mm -hmm. And that's the stuff they would have. So I remember Phil coming up to me. He's like, yo, did you bring mixtapes? Because he knew I always had mixtapes on. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, how many can you give me? And I'm like, well, what's up? He's like, Just, how many can you give me? And I'm like, and I gave him as many as I could give him. Well, it turns out he took my mixtapes and he distributed them throughout like the taxis and all the different things like that, that they would would have had their samplers on because they, their shit was stuck in, in customs. Wow. So people were coming in like artists or executives or whoever. And in the, in the, in the cab or in the lobby was playing an EFN mixtape. Wow. So that was dope. Another thing that happened there that was really dope is, um, I remember we got, to one of the panels it was like a marketing panel mm -hmm. and one of their panelists was a no-show so phil tells me yo e um you want to jump on this panel for me and fill in that spot and i'm like uh yeah i guess <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm here to learn <laughs> not not talk on a panel yeah so it was hilarious because you got like you know and i don't remember exactly who was on the panel but But for the sake of the conversation, like one dude was like a Def Jam marketing rep. Another guy was like Universal. Another person was, you know, some, some big. And then it was like me. Right. 
And wow. it was hilarious because then, you know, we're, we're, we start the panel, we're talking, and these guys are telling the, the, the people in the audience, like, you know, you should do this and that. And they're talking about all their strategies as, a, as like a corporate company type of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I'm here talking about like, yeah, man, I go to Kinko's and I, I make copies and, you know, <laughs> I, I make my tapes and I, and I go out there to the streets and I put up stickers and I put up posters. And it's since... The people in the, in the audience could identify with what I was saying to them, right? Because that's what they could do. They couldn't really identify with the corporate marketing shit, right? So at the you know at the end of like a panel, I'm sure you, well you you were at the revolt conference. Yeah. You know at the end of a panel, the panelists come off, and then like the people like in the audience, they gravitate to the panelists, and then they group up and they ask, ask them like questions. personal questions. Yeah. yeah. Well. I remember when the panel ended, like all the people came, like most of them came to me. <laughs> And that was hilarious. And you know that again, these are all like building blocks to building my confidence, um, building, you know, letting me know that what I'm doing is on the right path. That and also teaching me that you don't always have to be like know everything. Like you can you can kind of wing it, but common sense is really the key to to winging things and and, and getting through it. You know, coming out the other side, you know, right. the right way. Right. Was there anything else you want to share from How Can I Be Down Jamaica? I mean, we we met. Well, I did meet um the whole thing with with the Baker Boys' older brother, um which I think he he passed away. Uh, actually, I'm pretty sure. So rest in peace to him. Mm-hmm. Um, I had lost my wallet over there, and and uh and one of the like they had like a little buses like busing people back and forth between events, and and a couple of years later, I'm on a I was working now for Loud Records as a as a the street team guy out here in Miami and he was the guy in LA and, and we ended up, he was like, yo man, I think I got your wallet. Wow. <laughs> and he had my wallet and he sent it back to me. And then, and then like the next, like the next year, his brothers moved to Miami and, you know, and then we have that connection now through his, the older brother. Mm. And now, you know, now it, I can use that, you know, the experience with the older brother to build a connection with the Baker boys now in Miami. So that helped me network with them. And it was a funny story. Like, you know, like, and it connected us all together. But, and then besides that, like, you know, we just met a ton of artists out there. And, and one of the things I regret most out of Jamaica is that I actually was sitting at a picnic table and I had Dr. Dre sitting right in front of me. Ah, what would you do? And I was, I was starstruck. I didn't say shit. One, two, I didn't say a goddamn thing. I was just like, "Holy shit!" This Dr. Dre right in front of me. One of my, you know, one of my, one of the guys from my favorite group of all times. You know. Yeah. And you know, Dr. Dre has always been Dr. Dre, so he was like bigger than life to me. And he was sitting right in front of me at a picnic table on a beachside show that Boot Camp Click was performing at, which is a uh, Black Moon and yeah. Smith and Wesson and all these guys. And he was sitting right there in front of me, like literally like one foot in front of me, you know? In our next episode, DJ EFN continues his story in our special two-part season finale of Family Ties. Tune in and listen to his crazy hood story. We also want you to check out Drink Champs and all the affiliated podcasts like Thugged Out Thursdays, The Drug Dealer's Dream, and many more that are being added to the network. So check us out at drinkchamps.com. Also, check us out at crazyhood.com. New episodes of Family Ties come out weekly. Family Ties is a Crazy Hood Productions. 
This episode was produced by DJ EFN and myself, Jay Havana. Our theme music is titled Southwest by DJ EFN featuring MC8, Blue, and Cam with production by The Guild. If you like what we're doing, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people find out about the show. Also, check us out on Audio Boom and CrazyHood.com. Always authentic. Always crazy.